Coming to you live from atop a giant kangaroo hurtling past Jupiter, this is Radio Free Themyscira, Minisode number one. The nation needs Wonder Woman. On Paradise Island, home of the eternally young and beautiful Amazon. Wonder Woman. Athena, give me strength. Who knows she has the strength of Hercules. Who knows she has the wisdom of Athena? Princess Diana, the Wonder Woman. Hello, Manazons and Amazons. Thank you for joining me again for Radio Free Themyscira, and welcome to Minisode number one. A quick note, while I'm going to do my best to keep this episode uh, rated PG, we will be going over some uh, topics that may lead to some odd questions if the uh, Wonderkins are about, so just keep that in mind. Uh, Moving ahead, I just want to thank everyone who visited and liked our Facebook page and shared our posts, and uh, those of you who waited so patiently for the show to finally be posted and then reposted uh, to iTunes. Thank you, guys, and I assure you, upcoming episodes will not have all those problems. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of, if you're one of our awesome listeners who tuned in for the super messy first recording of episode one, uh, you may remember me saying that the first mini-sode was going to be a commentary on the first episode of the Linda Carter TV show. But after uh, reviewing the Golden Age story we're going to be covering in episode two, I realize that there's some information we need to know about Wonder Woman's creation and her creator to discuss the themes that appear in that issue. Also, that issue will provide some uh, context that will be helpful when we do a commentary on the TV episode. So today's first mini soap will be about Wonder Woman's creator, William Moulton Marston. So uh, W.M. Marston was a Harvard top psychologist who had some really interesting ideas about how men and women should interact. It could be argued that Marston really wasn't a feminist, but maybe a misandrist. While feminists believe in equality between the genders, misandrists believe that women are actually superior to men. Um, it, it, that There is some flaws in that idea, though, as uh, usually misandry involves some anti-male feelings, while Marston was just very, very pro-female. Uh, Marston actually spoke in interviews about how he was glad that little girls were feeling empowered by the Wonder Woman comics, but that he was really writing these stories for young men to prepare them for the world he believed was coming, in which women would be in control of the major powers of the world. So while Wonder Woman was Marston's most successful venture, it was not his only one. Like many creators of iconic characters, he was a man who had tried on a lot of different hats before he found a project that really worked. At one point, he worked for Universal Studios as a psychological consultant, where he offered his skills to give Universal Pictures some uh, psychological realism. One film he worked on that has to be mentioned is The Man Who Laughs, which is a horror film about a clown whose face is horribly disfigured and is always stuck in a constant smile. Uh, And that had a huge influence on the creation of Batman's film, The Joker. So that connects Marston to yet another iconic DC character. Now to talk about Marston's work on Wonder Woman, we almost end up looking more at the women in his life than William himself. In fact, the idea to make the superhero he was creating a female came from his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Marston. Elizabeth was a strong woman in her own right, who fought to go to college in a time when few women did. 
Whenever her father disallowed her to go to college, she got two jobs selling cookbooks door to door during the day while selling soap outside of movie theaters at night. The year that she graduated from the Boston University of Law, she was one of only three women to graduate. She'd go on to get two more degrees after that. In fact, she always joked about how whenever she and William went to take the bar exam, she finished so quickly she had to wait outside the building for him to be done. Marston and Elizabeth's most influential work besides Wonder Woman uh, was their studies in measuring systolic blood pressure, which could be used to determine if someone was telling the truth or not. Unfortunately, later on, an inventor named John Larson developed a more practical polygraph machine, uh, which knocked Marsden and Elizabeth out of the running for recognition of Delighted Hector's creation. Still, that influence of uh, William and Elizabeth's work can clearly be seen in Wonder Woman's magic lasso. So Elizabeth and William lived in a large house outside of New York on a manor referred to as Cherry Orchard. They lived there with their children, as well as a former student of Marston's named Olive Byrne and their children. <laughs> uh, there was also a third woman living in their household, a widowed librarian named uh, Marjorie Huntley. Um, there's very little information about her, though. We know that she lived with the family on and off, but she uh, seemed to spend all of her time living in the attic, hanging beads and incense. So William, Elizabeth, and Olive were living together in a polyamorous relationship. And while it seems like Elizabeth wasn't initially into the idea, she later on seemed to adjust to it. Later on in letter, she would affectionately refer to uh, Olive as her companion. Some sources make it seem more like both Elizabeth and William had a wife in Olive. Elizabeth and William would go out into the city every day and pursue their careers, while Olive stayed home and took care of the children and all the household duties. Uh, so she was their stay-at-home stay wife. Like Elizabeth, though, Olive had also worked very hard to get through college and had a lot of ideas about women and the civil rights they deserved, as well as the rights they had over their own body. Olive's aunt was Margaret Sanger, who was a proponent of birth control during the turn of the century. And she and Olive's mother established the uh, Birth Control Federation of America, which eventually became Planned Parenthood. And this was a huge deal because at the time in America, just about any form of birth control was seen as an act against society and an act against God. Byrne later talked about how in college she would send her lady friends to her aunt for secret birth control assistance. Part of Byrne's personal style was that she would always wear these thick metal bracelets on both wrists. And these may have been her version of a wedding ring, symbolizing her relationship with Marston. But that's not the only major influence that she had on the themes of Wonder Woman. While working as Marston's research assistant, Olive brought the professor to several sorority parties many of which involved hazing of new initiates. These hazings often involved the hopefuls being tied up and ordered about by current sorority members. This led to Marston formulating some interesting ideas about how people should treat each other. I'm going to do my best not to get too graphic with this. Uh, this is where it becomes a little bit PG. He believed that as a society, we should be willing to submit our wills to other people. He believed that through psychological as well as physical submission, we'd gain a new respect for each other because submitting to each other would lead to peace, while trying to be actively dominant over each other only led to conflict. And this certainly extended to the physical realm, as he believed that this kind of social bondage would undoubtedly come with his own sense of eroticism. And these ideas certainly found their way throughout Marston's Wonder Woman comics. In almost every issue of Wonder Woman, she ends up tied up by villains, and these villains represent forceful domination. 
without the accompanying submission. An early example of this is the treatment of the Amazons from Hercules' men. Domination without the accompanying submission. An aspect of the comics that was directly influenced by the sorority parties that Olive take Mars into are the girls of Holiday College, who Wonder Woman often recruits to help her on her missions. They were led by Wonder Woman's best friend, Ada Candy, or as she's known in one issue, the Queen of Spanks and Slams. Just like the sorority that Byrne and Marston had visited, the Holiday Girls were involved in, in the hazing of their own recruits. One repetitive example is sorority member Eve Brown. When we first meet Eve, she's working as an errand girl for the U.S. Air Force. Unfortunately, she's fallen in love with a Nazi named Herr Gross and has been unknowingly feeding him information about U.S. operations. Fortunately, her older sister discovers what's going on and comes to Wonder Woman for help. Wonder Woman saves Eve from the Nazis who have turned on her and brings her to Holiday College, where she becomes one of Etta Candy's Holiday Girls. As part of her initiation, she's tied up on all fours blind and blindfolded while Etta dangles a piece of candy in front of her face. Every time she misses the piece of candy with her mouth, she gets spanked by the other sorority members. The next issue escalates quickly, where we find Eve chained to a ra radiator in a dog collar being spanked by a hooded senior member of the sorority. Later on in another issue, we see Eve being chased through the campus by the other holiday girls with ropes and paddles. This is just one of many examples of Diana and her friends engaging in bondage-centric games. One has to point out, though, while Marston's view suggested that both men and women should enjoy giving in to loving domination, there really isn't as much submissive bondage of men in these comics. While Steve Trevor and others do get tied up, the way the women end up bound is always in a much more provocative manner. This may reveal more about what Marston liked than the message he was trying to send about interpersonal interactions. And the eroticism that made its way into the comics caused quite a lot of stress for poor DC publisher at the time, Max Gaines, who had to take the brunt of the backlash. But really, for the man whose major comics projects uh, included picture stories of the Bible, Gaines was surprisingly tolerant of Marston's ideas. But he was the one who had to read the mail responses from social conscience groups pointing out the bizarre amount of bondage themes in their children's comics. He also had to read letters from people who understood where Marston was coming from, some of which were fan letters asking very specific questions about the methods of tying people up. Uh, one of my favorites like that was a man who was like, yes, I like this kind of thing. I enjoy bondage and being bound, but why is it appearing in this comic? So these themes continued to appear in Wonder Woman until Morrison's death in 1947 from cancer. Uh, meanwhile, Elizabeth and Olive continued to live together for the rest of their lives. Uh, Olive passed away in the 1980s, and Elizabeth passed away in 1993 at the age of 100. Over the years, Elizabeth had tried to uh, insert herself into the Wonder Woman comics again, uh, trying to uh, take over the writing to bring back some of the ideas that uh, Morrison had put in but she never really got the chance to. Most later authors were pretty successful in erasing Wonder Woman's bondage history from the comics. Even the, uh, the authors who showed a lot of respect for what came before, like George Perez or the handsome, handsome Phil Jimenez, never got the chance to integrate the ideas of Marston's loving submission into their comics. Uh, we'll get to them later, though. And in the 70s, when Wonder Woman was kind of revitalized by groups like uh, Women's Lib and Gloria Steinem's Ms. Magazine, 
they were largely concentrating on the feminist aspects of her character while largely ignoring uh, the uh, some of the other ideas like uh, the the female dominance and the uh, the bondage themes. The writers that took over right after Marston's death uh, pulled out all the bondage ideas and replaced them with ideas that were pretty silly, uh, sometimes even um, bordering on stupid, I'd even say. Uh, but we'll talk about that next week after we talk about the second half of Wonder Woman's Golden Age story and what happens to her whenever she arrives in Man's World. So we're just about done with the first minisode. Before I go, I just wanted to give a couple of uh, shout-outs. First of all, some of the books that I used for this episode uh, that had a lot of great information were The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore and Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine by Tim Hanley. Um, I've listened to both these books on audiobook like a hundred times before I did this episode. Jill Lepore's book, The Hit Secret History, has a lot of information about uh, William Marston and the feminist ideas that came before Wonder Woman's creation, as well as the life stories of both Elizabeth and Olive. Um, Wonder Woman Unbound is awesome because it talked a lot more about the themes within the comics themselves and Wonder Woman's history leading up until uh, the 1987 reboots, uh, which is awesome because it filled in a lot of gaps for me in that post Marston era up until the George Perez era. So I definitely recommend both of those. I'll uh, I'll probably put links to them to buy on Amazon in the uh, show notes. Also, I have to thank uh, Paul Hale from the Disney Story Origins podcast for giving me some some podcasting advice and directing me to uh, some sites to get sound effects and music, uh, a lot of which you heard in episode one. So just shout out to Paul. Uh, Also, you guys should definitely go check out his podcast, Disney Story Origins. In each episode, he talks about a Disney movie and gives a lot of the historical and cultural context behind the, the original stories that those movies are based off of. So that just about does it for today. So uh, uh, keep an eye out on iTunes and SoundCloud for episode two, in which we will learn about what happens to Diana after she arrives in Man's World. And then some of the uh, semi-reboots that she goes through in the Silver Age. (laughs) See you guys uh, next time. And may Aphrodite's ideas of beauty and justice follow you always. Thank you.